Section 21 of The Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Fascio. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter 7. The Cathedral. Part 1. During the first year of her marriage, before Ursula was born, Anna Brangwen and her husband went to visit her mother's friend, the Baron Skrebensky. The latter had kept a slight connection with Anna's mother, and had always preserved some officious interest in the young girl, because she was a pure Pole. When Baron Skrebensky was about forty years old, his wife died, and left him raving, disconsolate. Lydia had visited him then, taking Anna with her. It was when the girl was fourteen years old. Since then, she had not seen him. She remembered him as a small, sharp clergyman who cried and talked and terrified her, whilst her mother was most strangely consoling, in a foreign language. The little baron never quite approved of Anna, because she spoke no Polish. Still, he considered himself in some way her guardian, on Lenski's behalf, and he presented her with some old, heavy Russian jewelry, the least valuable of his wife's relics. Then he lapsed out of the Bronwyn's life again, though he lived only about thirty miles away. Three years later came the startling news that he had married a young English girl of good family. Everybody marveled. Then came a copy of The History of the Parish of Briswell by Rudolf Baron Skrebensky, Vicar of Briswell. It was a curious book, incoherent, full of interesting exhumations. It was dedicated, quote, To my wife, Millicent Maud Pierce, in whom I embrace the generous spirit of England, unquote. If he embraces no more than the spirit of England, said Tom Brangwen, it's a bad lookout for him. But paying a formal visit to his wife, he found the new baroness a little creamy-skinned, insidious thing with red-brown hair and a mouth that one must always watch, because it curved back continually in an incomprehensible, strange laugh that exposed her rather prominent teeth. She was not beautiful, yet Tom Brangwen was immediately under her spell. She seemed to snuggle like a kitten within his warmth, whilst she was at the time elusive and ironical, suggesting the fine steel of her claws. The baron was almost dotingly courteous and attentive to her. She, almost mockingly, yet quite happy, let him dote. Curious little thing she was, she had the soft, creamy, elusive beauty of a ferret. Tom Brangwen was quite at a loss, at her mercy, and she laughed, a little breathlessly, as if tempted to cruelty. She did put fine torments on the elderly baron. When some months later she bore a son, the baron Skrebensky was loud with delight. Gradually, she gathered a circle of acquaintances in the county. For she was of good family, half Venetian, educated in Dresden. The little foreign vicar attained to a social status which almost satisfied his maddening pride. Therefore the Bronwyns were surprised when the invocation came for Anna and her young husband to pay a visit to Briswell Vicarage. For the Skrebenskys were now moderately well off, Millicent Skrebensky having some fortune of her own. Anna took her best clothes, recovered her best high school manner, and arrived with her husband. Will Bronwyn, ruddy, bright, with long limbs and a small head, like some uncouth bird, was not changed in the least. The little baroness was smiling, showing her teeth, 
She had a real charm, a kind of joyous coldness, laughing, delighted, like some weasel. Anna at once respected her, and was on guard before her, instinctively attracted by the strange, childlike surety of the baroness, yet mistrusting it, fascinated. The little baron was now quite white-haired, very brittle. He was wizened and wrinkled, yet fiery, unsubdued. Anna looked at his lean body, at his small, fine, lean legs and lean hands as he sat talking, and she flushed. She recognized the quality of the male in him, his lean, concentrated age, his informed fire, his faculty for sharp, deliberate response. He was so detached, so purely objective. A woman was thoroughly outside him. There was no confusion. So he could give that fine, deliberate response. He was something separate and interesting. His hard, intrinsic being, whittled down by age, to an essentiality and a directness almost death-like, cruel, was yet so unswervingly sure in its action, so distinct in its surety, that she was attracted to him. She watched his cool, hard, separate fire, fascinated by it. Would she rather have it than her husband's diffuse heat, than his blind, hot youth? She seemed to be breathing high, sharp air, as if she had just come out of a hot room. These strange Skrebinskys made her aware of another, freer element, in which each person was detached and isolated. Was not this her natural element? Was not the close Bronwyn life stifling her? Meanwhile, the little baroness, with always a subtle light stirring of her full, lustrous, hazel eyes, was playing with Will Bronwyn. He was not quick enough to see all her movements, yet he watched her steadily, with unchanging, lit-up eyes. She was a strange creature to him, but she had no power over him. She flushed and was irritated. Yet she glanced again and again at his dark, living face, curiously, as if she despised him. She despised his uncritical, unironical nature, yet had nothing for her. Yet it angered her as if she were jealous. He watched her with deferential interest as she would watch a stoat playing. But he himself was not implicated. He was different in kind. She was all lambent, biting flames. He was a red fire glowing steadily. She could get nothing out of him. So she made him flush darkly by assuming a biting, subtle class superiority. He flushed, but still he did not object. He was too different. Her little boy came in with a nurse. He was a quick, slight child with fine perceptiveness and a cool transitoriness in his interest. At once he treated Will Bronwyn as an outsider. He stayed by Anna for a moment, acknowledged her, then was gone again, quick, observant, restless, with a glance of interest at everything. The father adored him, and spoke to him in Polish. It was queer, the stiff, aristocratic manner of the father with the child, the distance in the relationship, the classic fatherhood on the one hand, the filial subordination on the other. They played together, in their different degrees very separate, two different beings, differing as it were in rank rather than in relationship. And the baroness smiled smiled, smiled, always smiled, showing her rather protruding teeth, 
having always a mysterious attraction and charm. Anna realized how different her own life might have been, how different her own living. Her soul stirred. She became as another person. Her intimacy with her husband passed away. The curious, enveloping Bronwyn intimacy, so warm, so close, so stifling, when one seemed always to be in contact with the other person, like a blood relation, was annulled. She denied it, this close relationship with her young husband. He and she were not one. His heat was not always to suffuse her, suffuse her through her mind and her individuality till she was of one heat with him, till she had not her own self apart. She wanted her own life. He seemed to lap her and suffuse her with his being, his hot life, till she did not know whether she were herself or whether she were another creature, united with him in a world of close-blood intimacy that closed over her and excluded her from all the cool outside. She wanted her own old, sharp self, detached, detached, active but not absorbed, active for her own part, taking and giving, but never absorbed. Whereas he wanted this strange absorption with her, which still she resisted. But she was partly helpless against it. She had lived so long in Tom Brangwen's love beforehand. From the Skrebenskys, they went to Will Brangwen's beloved Lincoln Cathedral, because it was not far off. He had promised her that one by one they should visit all the cathedrals of England. They began with Lincoln, which he knew well. He began to get excited as the time drew near to set off. What was it that changed him so much? She was almost angry, coming as she did from the Skrebinskys. But now he ran on alone. His very breast seemed to open its doors to watch for the great church brooding over the town. His soul ran ahead. When he saw the cathedral in the distance, dark blue lifted watchful in the sky, his heart leapt. It was the sign in heaven. It was the spirit hovering like a dove, like an eagle over the earth. He turned his glowing ecstatic face to her, his mouth opened with a strange ecstatic grin. There she is, he said. The she irritated her. Why she? It was it. What was the cathedral? A big building, a thing of the past, obsolete, to excite him to such a pitch. She began to stir herself to readiness. They passed up the steep hill, he eager as a pilgrim arriving at the shrine. As they came near the precincts, with castle on one side and cathedral on the other, his veins seemed to break into fiery blossom. He was transported. They had passed through the gate, and the great west front was before them, with all its breath and ornament. It is a false front, he said looking at the golden stone and the twin towers, and loving them just the same. In a little ecstasy, he found himself in the porch, on the brink of the unrevealed. He looked up to the lovely unfolding of the stone. He was to pass within to the perfect womb. Then he pushed open the door, and the great pillared gloom was before him, in which his soul shuddered and rose from her nest. His soul leapt, soared up into the great church. His body stood still, absorbed by the height. 
His soul leapt up into the gloom, into possession. It reeled, it swooned with a great escape. It quivered in the womb, in the hush, and the gloom of fecundity, like seed of procreation and ecstasy. She too was overcome with wonder and awe. She followed him in his progress. Here, the twilight was the very essence of life. The colored darkness was the embryo of all light and the day. Here, the very first dawn was breaking, the very last sunset sinking, and the immemorial darkness, whereof life's day would blossom and fall away again, re-echoed peace and profound immemorial silence. Away from time, always outside of time, between east and west, between dawn and sunset, the church lay like a seed in silence, dark before germination, silenced after death. Containing birth and death, potential with all the noise and transition of life, the cathedral remained hushed, a great involved seed, whereof the flower would be radiant life inconceivable, but whose beginning and whose end were the circle of silence. Spanned round with the rainbow, the jeweled gloom folded music upon silence, light upon darkness, fecundity upon death, as a seed folds leaf upon leaf, and silence upon the root and the flower, hushing up the secret of all between its parts, the death out of which it fell, the life into which it has dropped, the immortality it involves, and the death it will embrace again. Here in the church, before and after were folded together. All was contained in oneness. Brangwen came to his consummation. Out of the doors of the womb he had come, putting aside the wings of the womb and proceeding into the light. Through daylight and day after day he had come, knowledge after knowledge and experience after experience, remembering the darkness of the womb, having prescience in the darkness after death. Then, between, while he had pushed open the doors of the cathedral and entered the twilight of both darkness, the hush of the twofold silence where dawn was sunset and the beginning and the end were one. Here the stone leapt up from the plain of earth, leapt up in a manifold, clustered desire each time, up, away, from the horizontal earth, through twilight and dusk and the whole range of desire, through the swerving, the declination, ah, to the ecstasy, the touch, to the meeting and the consummation, the meeting, the clasp, the close embrace, the neutrality, the perfect, swooning consummation, the timeless ecstasy. There his soul remained at the apex of the arch, clinched in the timeless ecstasy, consummated. And there was no time, nor life, nor death, but only this, this timeless consummation, where the thrust from earth met the thrust from earth, and the arch was locked on the keystone of ecstasy. This was all. This was everything. Till he came to himself in the world below. Then, again, he gathered himself together in transit. Every jet of him strained and leaped, leaped clear into the darkness above, to the fecundity and the unique mystery, to the touch, the clasp, the consummation, the climax of eternity, the apex of the arch.
she too was overcome, but silenced rather than tuned to the place. She loved it as a world not quite her own. She resented his transports and ecstasies. His passion in the cathedral at first awed her, then made her angry. After all, there was the sky outside, and in here, in this mysterious half-night, when his soul leapt with the pillars upwards, it was not to the stars and the crystalline dark space, but to meet and clasp with the answering impulse of leaping stone, there in the dusk and secrecy of the roof. The far-off clinching and mating of the arches, the leap and thrust of the stone, carrying a great roof overhead, awed and silenced her. But yet, yet she remembered that the open sky was no blue vault, no dark dome hung with many twinkling lamps, but a space where stars were wheeling in freedom, with freedom above them always higher. The cathedral roused her too, but she would never consent to the knitting of all the leaping stone in a great roof that closed her in, and beyond which was nothing, nothing. It was the ultimate confine. His soul would have liked it to be so. Here, here is all, complete, eternal. Motion, meeting, ecstasy, and no illusion of time, of night and day passing by, but only perfectly proportioned space and movement clinching and renewing, and passion surging its way into great waves to the altar, recurrence of ecstasy. Her soul, too, was carried forward to the altar to the threshold of eternity, in reverence and fear and joy. But ever she hung back in the transit, mistrusting the culmination of the altar. She was not to be flung forward on the lift and lift of passionate flights, to be cast at last upon the altar steps as upon the shore of the unknown. There was a great joy and a verity in it. But even in the dazed swoon of the cathedral, she claimed another rite. The altar was barren, its lights gone out. God burned no more in that bush. It was dead matter lying there. She claimed the right to freedom above her, higher than the roof. She had always a sense of being roofed in. So that she caught at little things, which saved her from being swept forward headlong in the tide of passion that leaps on into the infinite in a great mass, triumphant and flinging its own course. She wanted to get out of this fixed, leaping, forward-traveling movement, to rise from it as a bird rises with wet, limp feet from the sea, to lift herself as a bird lifts its breast and thrusts its body from the pulse and heave of a sea that bears it forward to an unwilling conclusion. Tear herself away like a bird on wings, and in open space where there is clarity, rise up above the fixed, surcharged motion, a separate speck that hangs suspended, moves this way and that, seeing and answering before it sinks again, having chosen or found the direction in which it shall be carried forward. And it was as if she must grasp at something, as if her wings were too weak to lift her straight off the heaving motion. So she caught sight of the wicked, odd little faces carved in stone, and she stood before them arrested. 
These sly little faces peeped out of the grand tide of the cathedral like something that knew better. They knew quite well, these little imps that retorted on man's own illusion, that the cathedral was not absolute. They winked and leered, giving suggestion of the many things that had been left out of the great concept of the church. However much there is inside here, there's a good deal they haven't got in, the little faces mocked. Apart from the lift and spring of the great impulse towards the altar, these little faces had separate wills, separate motions, separate knowledge, which rippled back in defiance of the tide, and laughed in triumph of their own very littleness. "'Oh, look!' cried Anna. "'Oh, look how adorable! The faces! Look at her!' Bronwyn looked unwillingly. This was the voice of the serpent in his Eden. She pointed him to a plump, sly, malicious little face carved in stone. "'He knew her, the man who carved her,' said Anna. "'I'm sure she was his wife.' "'It isn't a woman at all. It's a man,' said Bronwyn curtly. "'Do you think so? No, that isn't a man. That is no man's face.' Her voice sounded rather jeering. He laughed shortly and went on. But she would not go forward with him. She loitered about the carvings, and he could not go forward without her. He waited impatient of this counteraction. She was spoiling his passionate intercourse with the cathedral. His brows began to gather. Oh, this is good, she cried again. Here is the same woman. Look, only he's made her cross. Isn't it lovely? Hasn't he made her hideous to a degree? She laughed with pleasure. Didn't he hate her? He must have been a nice man. Look at her. Isn't it awfully good? Just like a shrewish woman. He must have enjoyed putting her in like that. He got his own back on her, didn't he? It's a man's face, no woman's at all, a monk's, clean-shaven, he said. She laughed with a poof of laughter. You hate to think he put his wife in your cathedral, don't you? She mocked, with a tinkle of profane laughter. And she laughed with malicious triumph. She had got free from the cathedral. She had even destroyed the passion he had. She was glad. He was bitterly angry. Strive as he would, he could not keep the cathedral wonderful to him. He was disillusioned. That which had been his absolute, containing all heaven and earth, was become to him as to her a shapely heap of dead matter. But dead. Dead. His mouth was full of ash. His soul was furious. He hated her for having destroyed another of his vital illusions. Soon he would be stark, stark without one place wherein to stand, without one belief in which to rest. Yet somewhere in him he responded more deeply to the sly little face that knew better than he had done before to the perfect surge of his cathedral. Nevertheless, for the time being, his soul was wretched and homeless, and he could not bear to think of Anna's ousting him from his beloved realities. He wanted his cathedral. He wanted to satisfy his blind passion, and he could not any more. Something intervened. End of section 21